welcome to You Got This, a podcast about teaching and learning and pivoting to digital for the whole TRU community. I'm your host, Brenna Clark-Gray, Coordinator of Educational Technologies, and this podcast is a project of your friends over at Learning Technology and Innovation. We're housed within open learning, but we support the whole campus community. I record this podcast in Tkumloops Te Suetmuk, within the unceded traditional lands of Suetmukulu, where I hope to learn and grow in community with all of you. And today's episode is about talking. <laughs> it's about communication, really, and about the way in which our teaching and learning and our collegial relationships are really constantly in a state of negotiation probably never more so than right now. So let's get into it. I don't know about you, but lately I don't know whether I am coming or going. (laughs) I'm looking around my home office and I am so lucky to have an actual space that is mine, but it's also like kind of a disaster. There's Lego on the floor, not mine. Coloring on the floor, also not mine. Um, There's post-its everywhere. Those are my fault. And I am just looking around my desk and I can count no less than one, two, three, four different to-do lists, (laughs) five sets of notes for various projects that are in various states of disarray. I'm feeling really disheveled (laughs) just all the time. Um, And not just because I haven't worn anything that isn't leggings and an oversized hoodie since last March. But I'm thinking about that right now because I'm looking at the calendar and I'm seeing that right around this time, probably first major assignments are coming in, right? Unit one tests or unit one essays are floating in. And I'm grateful that I'm not also managing a marking load on top of the disaster that is my workspace right now, which of course got me thinking about all of you, those of you who are listening, who are negotiating that. And then it also got me thinking about our students and I'm thinking about what they're negotiating right now and what their working spaces look like. And if they're feeling as disheveled as me, I hope not. I hope I am an anomaly. I I hope the rest of you have your S completely together and that I'm the only one looking at my to-do lists, plural, wondering how I'm going to merge them all into one to-do list. Part of me wants to just burn them all and start fresh, but I feel like that's going to end in disaster. Anyway, all of this has got me thinking about how we communicate with one another right now and how important clear communication is at this moment. I'm thinking a lot about what it is we need from each other in order to be able to do our jobs um, and in order to be able to feel like we're on top of things. Maybe feeling that way is actually just completely out of reach. I don't know, but I'm trying. I've been hearing a lot from students when they reach out for help that the number one issue for them right now is just uncertainty. Like they're just not sure of what's expected of them minute to minute. And that's something I really empathize with. I'm thinking we could probably all stand to 
brush up on our communication skills right now to think about what assumptions we're making about where folks are getting their material and whether or not they understand it. And I'm thinking that this is probably a really good moment for everyone to check in, whether it's with people on your team, your students, but I'm thinking particularly about communicating clear expectations right now and what that looks like. And if there is even just one way. I've been noticing lately, not casting aspersions, but nobody's reading what I'm writing. <laughs> I answer tickets all day. And I'm noticing a real theme of two or three tickets to conquer a single task. And sometimes that's me. I'm not communicating explicitly enough. And sometimes I think we're just so inundated with text right now that we're not really reading our emails clearly enough. So I guess my challenge for this week is to think about how we communicate what we need to other people and how we hear what we're being told, especially if it's sometimes not what we want to hear. I invited Nathan Lane from the Student Union to come and talk this week because he's someone who does a lot of communication and a lot of community building, and he's very much in touch with what large portions of our student population are experiencing right now. So I hope you'll enjoy this chat. I think you'll learn a lot about the kinds of particular barriers that are in place for our students and that maybe the best way to overcome them is with communication and empathy because can you even have good communication without empathy? That's one for the philosophers, I guess. Here's Nathan. So today I am here with Nathan Lane, who is, oh, Nathan, remind me of your title. You're the executive director of the Student Union, right? I am, yes. Awesome. Could you tell people a little bit about who you are, what you do, and then where they may have interacted with you on campus? My phrase of choice is in the before times, but even more recently, if you have examples. Perfect. So uh, my name is Nathan Lane. I'm the executive director at the Students' Union. Um, basically, what I do is I work with the board of directors to help plan and sort of set the agenda for the year uh, manage the finances of the student union, and then I oversee the building and services operations of the student union. So if you were to bump into me, it's likely in the student union building at the front desk or uh, in one of the meeting rooms. That's probably how most students or faculty would have come across me. We run into a lot because we really like booking your spaces. <laughs> that is great to hear. <laughs> They're good spaces. They're really good spaces. Um, so Nathan, in your role, you hear a lot from students, right? I mean, day to day, you hear a lot from students. Yeah, I think I'm in a unique position on campus because we have a sort of open office concept with about 19 students who work out of there. So my everyday work experience is in an office with uh, a range of students who come in and out throughout the day, which I think creates a really unique work environment on campus. Yeah. And I, I guess, you know, you hear from them not only in their working capacity, but because they are 
working and going to school at the same time and you're in this space with them, you also hear about their classes and the positives, the negatives, everything that's going on, right? Yeah, I think it's a pretty close-knit environment in terms of the people who sort of frequent our building or particularly students who are in our office, club leaders, elected leaders. You get pretty familiar with each other's lives when you share a desk for a year. And you do that over 16 years with a range of people. Uh, You start to get a little bit of familiarity with students for sure. Is that how long you've been in the role, 16 years? This is my 16th year on campus, yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, I love it. There's typically a lot of turnover in student governance. So I'm guessing that to a certain degree, you provide a level of consistency for, for, for the student union as a structure. Yeah, I think that's one of the cool things about the student union is that we have, it's not quite every student every year. There's often sort of people who do one, two, and three years, but it's cool to have that balance of staff, people who've been there a really long time and have a lot of institutional memory, but also every year, two thirds of our organization rolls over, brings new Mm -hmm. ideas, new excitement. So some people see it as a big challenge, but I actually really like it. I think it keeps the organization pretty agile. It makes the job fun. You got new excited people every nine months coming through the organization. And I guess as a result, you know a lot. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, you know a lot about like official things. And also you just have a lot of knowledge of what's going on on the ground for students in their lives. Yeah, I think that um, it's, I'm always hesitant to say, yeah, I know a lot, but I I would say that we definitely have a lot of contact points. And so I think that we have a lot of ways, whether it's through club structures or students we work with or just the people we see every day in the coffee shop. If you're listening and you're empathetic, you can get a, gather a lot about how people are feeling and what's going on on campus for sure. Yeah. And you and I had met doing various things, Open Ed Week and some other interactions. The fact that we do book your spaces all the time meant that we had a fair amount of contact. But we started talking more once the pivot to online instruction happened back in March, right? Yeah, I think that we were definitely wanting to try to get out ahead of what it might look like and what students could expect and how we would get their feedback in a meaningful way into a system to sort of shape what it was looking like. And so Mm -hmm. that was where we sorted to try to build a connection was we thought that that would be the best way to sort of provide helpful real-time feedback and understand what we were going to be looking at. Because I think everyone was sort of hesitantly finishing out the winter, but also trying to think of what does this mean? How are we going to do this moving forward? And who do we need to work with, etc.? Yeah, definitely. I think it was such a confusing time, right? Like it was overwhelming. And we had this specter of like health safety pandemic in the background, right? It wasn't just about logistics, but also about like emotional, the emotional experience of like, do I want to be on campus right now? When do we pull the plug on this? Like all that kind of stuff. A lot of the conversation was about how people were learning and what their classes look like, but a huge amount of the work is about ensuring that students had a stable place to live, a job, food, 
uh, computer Wi-Fi access, and that there's a whole series of prerequisites that don't get factored into the institutional equation. They're just mm-hmm. sort of this assumption that gets made that everybody comes with varying degrees, but with some level of sort of stability. And what we found out really quickly at the beginning of the pandemic is it's hard to talk about the learning you prefer if Mm -hmm. you are not in a position personally where you can um, stably come to the class and talk about what's going on and what you prefer. So that was the vast majority of work that we did in the sort of late spring. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit more about that, about basic needs and our particular student population? Like we, we've we heard sort of stats from the province about who's having difficulty with their, uh, you know, meeting basic needs during the pandemic. But I'm not sure we know enough necessarily about our particular student population. What kinds of concerns are you hearing about from students? During the like very aggressive shutdown days when a lot of people lost their jobs that many, many, many of our members were like one week of work away from not having food. The demand on our food bank went from um, uh, sort of average to we were running a 24-hour by appointment come to pick up food bank packages. Oh, wow. I think that the other area that we saw um, a lot of challenge in was students Um, there's sort of this perception that students working in the system is a luxury. It's, Mm. I mean, I think that's antiquated and has been for a while, but the pandemic definitely laid bare that international students particularly rely heavily on part-time work, but Mm -hmm. also domestic students that it's not just a little bit of spending money. It's a real life, how I pay my rent, how I pay for my courses, how I pay food, how I have a cell phone. Um, And when that wasn't available, it put a massive strain into the system because government support came a little later. And Mm -hmm. so there was this really um, aggressive period where students were trying to complete a semester. The supports that were coming from the institution or the government were sort of slightly delayed and students were caught in the middle um, and the vast majority of part-time work had stopped. And so Mm -hmm. you didn't have some kind of support network personally, you were in a lot of trouble. Yeah, I thought about that a lot during the transition because that attitude is antiquated, but it still persists, you know? And I I even remember like when I was a grad student, like 2000 and five, I remember having a conversation with my advisor and he was like, he thought I was working too much. He was like, you know, maybe you just need to like cut back on the extras. And I remember being like, like, like electricity, like what is it you want me to cut back on exactly? Um, And so I think that understanding of what real life looks like for our student population, it's really important for people to keep in mind when we think about the pressures on our students right now. Yeah, I think that one of the challenging things we've been talking about over the last number of months is how we structure coursework and Mm -hmm. how we structure learning in whatever this new environment may bring as we go forward. But we often forget from a student perspective, which I think is 
kind of funny given that we're all doing it as <laughs> professionals, but we don't take into account that students are also restructuring jobs, living arrangements, yeah. family supports, parental obligations, and all of those things also got adjusted and need yeah. to factor into this environment as they move forward. And those are pretty basic things that a major change to your childcare has mm-hmm. actually a big impact on your ability to participate in the classroom. And that got lost pretty quickly in the discussion about what the digital platform would be. Yeah, it's true. I think um, I remember having discussions with folks who were like, well, we'll just keep teaching in these time slots because students have obviously booked this time off. And the conversation was, well, okay, but now their daycare is shut and actually they work at a grocery store. So they're not short on shifts. They are getting tons of extra shifts. And, you know, like everybody's life was so precarious, um, probably students more than anyone in, especially in those first months, I think things have leveled out for a lot of people into this sort of quote unquote new normal, whatever we're calling it. Um, but yeah, I think it was hard for a lot of folks in more institutionally stable positions to recognize what that was looking like on the ground for students, perhaps. Yeah, I think that it forced us to unpack a lot of biases that we have about Mm -hmm. each other in terms of, I think that no matter how progressive your thinking is on campus, there's still sort of seated collectively these biases about who a student is and Mm -hmm. about what when they come to learning and about who a faculty member and staff are. And so I think that it it sort of tints the picture in terms of how we talk about how we come together to do to do the things we do because we don't it would be foolish for us to ever talk about how we have empathy for and support faculty members um, in a learning environment without taking into account that they have partners and children and financial obligations, et cetera. But Mm -hmm. I would say that it's rare that those get factored into the start of a conversation about students as if they don't have any of those things. Yeah. it's And even with organizations that should know better, you know, that survey that we put out back in the spring, um, we took those questions from the Educause uh, survey, which is, and it's a fantastic organization, but even they had no questions in the student sort of affect section about caregiving. Um, Those questions we added in because we were like, well, students are also caregivers Um, for their own children, for elderly parents, for sick family members, for a housemate who is suddenly, uh, you know, has to lock down, whatever it is. Um, Yeah, I think you're right. I think I keep, (laughs) I try to be optimistic, Nathan, and I keep coming back to this idea that if, if this event doesn't humanize the academy as a space, both for faculty and staff and students, um, nothing nothing is going to. Yeah, <laughs> Maybe that's not actually what, optimistic. I think, that, I think <laughs> that there are some, this has in some ways leveled the playing field in terms of how mm. we talk about each other. I just, I think that we hear all the time people talking about sort of the mechanics of how their yeah. classes are happening in the fall. And I think that for a number of years, there's language around sort of how we're changing the classroom and how the conversation is going two ways. We're in making efforts to have modes of learning that are sort of evolving beyond just the traditional one-way lecture. 
But Mm -hmm. I think that we're seeing some really cool things happen in a real environment uh, in real time where many students are actually as adept or in some instances more familiar with the tools Mm -hmm. um, than the instructor delivering the content. And so I think that the Mm -hmm. relationship has now become, um, I think, balanced in a way that is, I think, really positive because Mm. it becomes more of a learning community where people are, have the things they bring that are really strong. And in some instances, it's their ability to adapt to and work in that environment, use the tools. And in some instances, it's knowledge or experience they have with the content. Mm. And it's sort of leveled the playing field. Both things are really important and valuable right now. Yeah, really very true. Um, and, and probably a good segue into what I wanted to do today, which is kind of, if we pretend that everyone in a sort of staffing or position of authority is like listening to this podcast, anybody who has sort of student contact from that perspective, I'm wondering, based on what you hear from students day to day and what you've observed throughout this very tumultuous time, I'm wondering what you would want to communicate directly to faculty and staff about the experience of students right now. That there is just this general sense of confusion. I think that mm. I think that one thing that's easy to do when you are the communicator is to assume that you have provided adequate information. And I think people are making a really good effort, but to try to communicate to people where they find things and how they find things and that what they should do. But I think that there is so much information coming from so many people. If mm-hmm. you're a student, we, I was just talking with a colleague yesterday about feedback we're getting around students. And there are students who are sharing with us. They're in three courses. They have three different learning platforms. Oh they God. have three different ways to access and submit assignments They're employed by an employer who has now changed the way that they engage in their online work. And so the sheer volume of instruction and information that's coming from people is just making it so challenging to understand what's happening and where you should be and how to get to the right place. And I think students are just feeling overwhelmed in the sense that it's not, even if you think you've been clear, and this has happened to me sometimes where I'm like, I thought I gave really clear instructions, but I would say, even if you think that you've provided adequate direction, there's no Mm -hmm. such thing as too much direction in this environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I have so much empathy for students who are trying to navigate multiple platforms. I think often we make decisions about platforms for a whole bunch of reasons, um, none, of, none of which end up being like consistency of student experience. Um, and definitely the fact that we struggled with Big Blue Button at the beginning of term meant that people were jumping to other platforms sort of midweek and there wasn't always great communication with students about what was happening. Yeah. And I, I think I think you're right that you kind of can't tell people things too many times or maybe it's just too many different ways right like oftentimes faculty feel like the information is in the syllabus because they spent a lot of time on that document they really carefully constructed it they feel like it's super clear 
But then when it's presented to students, particularly when we're not doing it face to face, it's like it's just this really dense document, right? That's often kind of difficult to read. If there's ways to present expectations to students in multiple formats, I think that's really valuable right now. Yeah, I think that, um, it, I think people, it's an emotionally charged topic when we start to talk about <laughs> the platforms that people select, because I think that I, I have not heard from any student that they think that uh, instructors or faculty members are selecting platforms or um, assignment structures, et cetera, um, out of anything other than the way they feel they can best deliver mm-hmm. the content. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that an easy way to sort of unpack some of the emotion that comes from the teaching and learning is to think about it in terms of how you manage your own individual to-do lists. Mm-hmm. Everyone has their own way, whether you write it on a piece of paper, you have an app you like, you use some family system, etc. And I think that faculty members have largely chosen the system that they think makes the most sense. But if you've ever tried to get somebody to use your to-do system, (laughs) that that doesn't go very well. And the analogy that I've been giving is, imagine right now that a student is being given five different productivity systems from five different people, Mm. all as a way to complete their life tasks. It's not that hard to see how that breaks down pretty quickly, even Mm. though everybody's intentions are good. And so... For most students, what it's meant is you're taking five systems and trying to form that into your own way of navigating the environment. And Mm. I think that's caused a lot of stress in the early three weeks because there's a fear you're missing something. There's a fear that things are going to change. There's a fear that you will be able to cope in that existing system Um, over the course of the year. And I mean, I use myself as an example. I fall out of my productivity system all the time. My lists get back up and things like that. And I think that uh, students will feel that anxiety as they start to fall out of what they think is the managing tactic for moving forward. And that causes a lot of stress when it is, when you think you're falling out of the adaptation or coping mechanism that is your education. Yeah. God, when you put it like that, it's that it's a very relatable as someone who regularly adopts and abandons new productivity systems. Um, and, and, and B, I can, I can already feel that sense of like overwhelm from, from what you're describing. Like, and it well, seems really obvious all of a sudden to me. Narrative around communication, because I think that if we talk about it as we just have to tell people what this will look like and mm-hmm. then adjust as it changes, it sets mm-hmm. this narrative like it's one thing and it can be communicated. But I think when you start to talk, particularly, I think it's a good conversation for faculty and staff. I know for myself, I've been in a decade long struggle to find a productivity system to manage my work and manage my anxiety with that work and still be productive, et cetera. So the idea that we would communicate a learning environment and then just expect that that would be fixed and that people will adapt and manage, this is a process and people are going to fall in and out of it. And you can't communicate that with one instructive email. It's a sense of empathy or relationship that's got to be ongoing. 
Um, you can't improve your own communication system by just sending yourself a reminder of how to log into the tool. It's about how you approach that system and talk about it and the compassion that your partner or colleagues have for you when you miss a deadline or mm-hmm. don't get to the right place. And I think for me, that's been a good analogy to think about what this is going to be like for students. Expect that they are going to go through cycles of this is working, this is not working, this is overwhelming, this is not overwhelming, and that we're managing through that, not communicating a fixed sort of way of existing. That's just not going to happen. Yeah, I think maybe this is a space where we invite some flexibility and also ensure that the communication is two-way, right? Like if a tool is really not working for students, sometimes the only way that that gets communicated is when no one submits the assignment, right? But inviting feedback throughout the process and having a sense of flexibility, grace, even humor about these tools and how there's not one that's perfect for everyone's situation, I think might allow for that communication to be ongoing and to not feel like, well, I set up the Moodle shell, I'm done or whatever. Yeah. And I think that on a positive note, like I don't have direct classroom experience, but I think that we've learned really quickly inside of the student union what ne- when space is at a premium, you can't have people in a digital room for eight hours at a time for a three day or for a full day board orientation. We're learning a lot as a community about what people can do before, what they do after, what learning actually happens best in the space with other people. And I think that it's easy to look at these sort of struggles or obstacles we're bumping up against as failures, but I actually think that if we're strategic about it and we approach it with empathy, we can learn a lot about things that we can move into the future as we sort of resume some in-person learning or in-person operating on campus to say, you know, this was a really good reality check about things that may actually not need to happen in the classroom or in the orientation that are actually best done by students or by staff in these places. And and because of that, we've created more space and time to do that thing we always wanted to do, but never got around to. It's a quick move for students to go to the, I'm paying for this class and I expect it to be excellent. And to forget that the person on the other side of whatever that learning is, is a person with a family who is also experiencing this. And so I think that one of the things that was really important really on is that we started to establish with everybody a sense of empathy that it's like, if you can empathize with your own struggle, that's Mm -hmm. likely what the vast majority of people are in their own way going through. And -hmm. I think that's been really hard because it is hard to... The institution has for many years gone down this road that has moved away from we're a community to we sell a product and Mm -hmm. you buy that product. And I think that that language has become really challenging because what it's meant is a student looks at a classroom as I am buying this thing and therefore I have a certain quality expectation 
And it's hard to unpack that narrative because the thing that becomes really challenging is that person who is delivering the course material and the learning is also a person experiencing what you're experiencing, coping the best way they can in a world that may or may not have been turned upside down. And that's been really hard because there was a big push for us at student unions early on to how are you aggressively calling out the institution (laughs) for their delivery? And like you referenced, um, early on some challenges we had in terms of some of the learning platforms and crashes. Mm-hmm. And it It's easy to default to the place of anger to say, mm-hmm. well, the expectation is that you would have figured this out. And I think that the student union and students, I think, are working really hard to try to say, we know that there is a learning outcome we need to get to, but mm-hmm. And there's this healthy balance between having expectations for the thing you're trying to engage in and also recognizing that everybody is coping. And I think that where that's really important for me, at least, is that students seek as much accommodation as they need and as much empathy from the structures of the institution, but that we should return that to the same level to say that we also have empathy for the structures and the people who are inside of the system who are also doing the best they can and maybe not always getting the accommodation they need, quite frankly. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, I like that you've taken it back to community because I think you're right. When we say we're all in this together, that actually has to mean something, (laughs) right? It can't just be a platitude that we use. And um Empathy is how we understand each other better, right? Like just on a really basic fundamental level. Yeah, I think that one of the things that has been sort of evolving on campus over time is they're they're moved to this model of sort of this art grand architecture of universities. Like we will become this type of university and (laughs) we will build this program. And I think that it's been really interesting in the sense that this architect notion of I know what the outcome is and I will lead us through this thing. And I think that what's been interesting is the people who've been most successful in the pandemic, I think in terms of building community and organizing within their community are the people who aren't outcome or architecture focused but are process focused. Who is in the network? What feedback is the network giving us? And um, what does it mean in terms of how we adapt things moving forward? If you come to a pandemic or a discussion about how people are experiencing things and you've already developed the solution, Mm. you're going to have a really tough time. But I think if you're the type of leader or faculty member or student who comes to the process with empathy for others and a sense that we will be looking for the organic feedback that points us in the right direction and will make sure everyone kind of gets there together. Those are the people who are succeeding in terms of moving forward because one, people are gravitating to them and two, it's just a better way to exist or be in the space. And so people gravitate to supporting that type of work. 
Yeah. I mean, maybe just in closing, I'd say one thing is we get asked a lot um, at the student union how students are feeling and they say, what can you tell us? And I would say that one thing that I would say is if you're wondering, ask them. One of the things that you guys did in your um, across a range of areas early on was you just asked people and it's it seems obvious, but we get a lot of questions where people sort of secretively say to us, can you tell us how students are feeling? And our answer is always the same, which is we can, but you know that we find out how they're feeling just by asking them. And so I would say that if you're concerned about how your colleague, your student, your partner or whoever, how they're feeling, I think probably we're not asking enough. There, yeah. That is probably my biggest takeaway in terms of how people can support or provide accommodation to them students, to their students. I would say ask and then ask again and then ask yeah. after that and then check back to see if the thing you got when you asked still holds true. Nobody in my experience at any point through this process has been upset because they've been asked about what they need or how things could help them. And so I think that sometimes people are just afraid to open that conversation. And when they do, the results are always good, but we're not doing it nearly enough. On our end, in terms of asking the institution what we could do as students to make this process better, but also as the institution to ask students, is the thing you told us 30 days ago still true today? Yeah, really important, right? That conversation um, on a micro level within a classroom, the relationship between faculty and students should always be constantly negotiated, right? And and never more so than now when you can't look out and see people's faces and sort of read their experience. Not that that's particularly accurate, but right now we don't even have that as feedback. So remembering to ask and ask again is um, that's a perfect place to leave it. Thanks so much, Nathan. All right. Thanks, Frenna. So that is it for episode six of You Got This. As always, if you want to write to us, you can email me at bgray at tru.ca. And I'm also on Twitter at Brenna C. Gray. In both cases, that's gray with an A. All of our show notes and transcripts are posted at yougotthis.truebox.ca. And of course, you can always comment on individual episodes there. I'm going to leave you today with a tiny teaching tip, maybe a bit of a tiny teaching challenge. I'd like to invite you this week as we're leading into major assignments and big expectations to take a look at your virtual learning environment, whether it's Moodle or something else, with really clear eyes and try to see if you're communicating expectations as clearly as possible. So would it help maybe to add a weekly agenda to your Moodle shell? Would it help to get in the practice of doing a quick two-minute video blog every week to check in with students? Would it maybe make sense to think about how the material is being presented? Is there a way that you can underscore what matters to you? Are you getting a lot of the same question over and over again? Is there another way to present that information so that you can know that students are understanding it? Communication is always a negotiation, but I think right now that's even more explicitly true 
than it has been previously. So I encourage you to take a look at the way you're communicating basic expectations to students right now and really ask yourself if it's working or if there are ways you can tweak things. You know, I tell this to people one-on-one all the time, but it's probably worth saying here, no one expected you to build the perfect course out of the gate, especially for those of you who are brand new to this medium, mode, whatever. So if you can, give yourself the space to take a reset and change what you're doing so that it works for you, for your students, and for everyone. Until next time, go easy on yourself, try to listen well, try to speak clearly, and try to bridge the gap when that's not happening. And I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.